You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it's so good to be here with you guys, getting really close to Christmas. Everybody's decorated, right? Liars. Hey, everybody got their presents bought? Some of you are like, why are you going here, Pastor? You're just hurting my heart right now. It is a wonderful time of the year, and we get to look forward to gathering with family, but again, as every pastor will say this time of the year, we gotta keep, make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. Make sure we stay focused on the most important things. That's what we wanna do today. So I'm gonna start by asking this really hard question, right? I'm gonna make you think ahead to the end of your life instead of at the beginning of your life, talk about babies. When you get to the end of your life, what do you want to be said of you? <coughs> When you get to the end of your life, what do you want to be said of you? So I've been thinking about this for a while now. Something happened uh, recently. I read a quote from a pastor. Uh, He's a pastor of a large church, a Southeast Christian church, Louisville, Kentucky. His name is Dave Stone. I've met Dave twice. The church runs, I don't know, 23,000 or something. I don't remember how many they run. That's huge. And uh, I've met him a couple times, but he would have no clue who I was. And uh, recently when he retired, they did an interview with him, like a local news down in Kentucky, and they asked him, you know, what is it you want to be remembered for? And he said, you know, he said, I think above anything else, if people would simply say, Dave has been with Jesus. And I thought, man, what a, what a powerful phrase. Like that, and I know you may be thinking other things, like I want to be known for starting some company that did X, Y, Z. When I was in high school, I knew a kid, he wanted to start the next uh, uh, Big Idea Productions who created VeggieTales, if you've ever thought of that. And like, you may have a dream to do all those things. I don't know. But for me, when I heard that, I was like, that's it. That's the phrase I'm looking for. I want to be known as somebody who's been with Jesus. But see, here's the thing, like you don't get to tell everybody else how they remember you right? People remember you for how they remember you. So for instance, let's say you die one day and they mark your, you know, little cemetery area with a headstone. It might look something like this. One way, do not enter. Now, is that how you want people to remember you? Probably not, but like maybe that's the best they had, or maybe he was a jokester. But this one would be great. How about this one? Uh, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and still there was love. <laughs> I got no girls, so I don't, maybe I should not make any comment. We'll move on. All right. But how about this one? Died from not forwarding the text message to 10 people. We do a gathering at 8 a.m. It's, uh, it's more traditional service. Our older crowd is there. And uh, I said that, and nobody laughed. And I thought, they don't know. <laughs> That's why I keep bidding them. On your last day, you are going to be remembered for something. And the question is, what will you be remembered for? And the reality is, you don't get to choose after your last day. And the only way that you get to choose is now. You get to live it now. You get to put certain pieces and components into your life now that when you're gone, people remember. And here is the dirty little secret on remembering. There's only two kinds of things you remember in life. The first one is anything that gets attached to a strong emotion, some extremely joyous moment, some extremely traumatic moment. Those are the moments that get remembered. Or 
the same moments, the same phrases, the same jokes over and over and over again. Those are the only two options. So at the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? You could kind of backtrack to today and simply ask this question. What are the most traumatic things that I've done in the lives of the people I love? Okay, maybe that's not how I want to be remembered. What are the things that I did over and over and over and over again? Because those are the two things that people will remember when you're gone. This morning, I woke up early as I often do on Sunday mornings to look over the message and pray and just talk to God and kind of focus my heart. And uh, as I was sitting there, I heard stirring going on above me. Uh, I figured it might be a long day for mommy because mama knows Sunday morning she's got to take the kiddos. I can't really help much. And uh, I look up and one little guy, my four-year-old, he's got his head peeked around the corner and just looking down at me. I was like, hey, buddy, what are you doing up? It was 5.30 this morning. And um, he said, dad. Yeah? He said, what are you doing? I'm praying. I'm talking to Jesus. I'm looking over my message. And he said, uh, are you talking to God? Yes. Yes. Quit waking up the house and go back to bed. But then I thought later, how applicable to today's message. I want my kids when they wake up in the morning to see me being with God. I want that. In fact, I want it to happen so much, I'm gonna start setting an alarm in their room. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But they're going to remember what they saw and what they heard from me over and over and over again. Well, today, that's a great setup for where we're going to be. We started the book of Luke a couple weeks ago. We're going to walk through the book of Luke all the way up to Easter time. And I just want to encourage you now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you you can have, there's one in front of you. There's also uh, uh, one on your phone. If you download the app, just go to your app store and look up Bible. Life Church made a wonderful Bible app. There's others out there, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub. But worst case scenario, it'll all be on the screen for you. It won't be that the whole service. So... Uh, Luke chapter two, we're doing a little bit of a one, two, skip a few here because we're skipping the birth story. We're gonna do that next week, you know, the Sunday right before Christmas. And so we're gonna go past the birth story to eight days after Jesus is born. And eight days after Jesus is born, according to the Old Testament teachings and customs, they took Jesus, Mary and Joseph took Jesus into the temple in order for him to be circumcised. That was what God commanded for them to do. So they did. And they showed up and they made a sacrifice of two small pigeons. And that's extremely important, even though I'm not reading it for you, I'm just telling you, because what it tells us is Mary and Joseph were very poor. So the Old Testament required that people make sacrifices to connect themselves back to God, to get right with God, and he always allowed a provision for those who didn't have very many resources. And so Mary and Joseph are very poor, and they bring their two pigeons, because who the world knows we don't need more pigeons. And so... They came in to present Jesus, to have him circumcised, to make the sacrifice, and that's when this happens in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was, a, he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, first of all, we have been meeting characters throughout 
the story of Jesus so far. We have met people like briefly John the Baptist and his mom and dad, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth, though not a priest, came from priestly tribe, priestly ancestry, and they are a great couple, but they are really old, far past the years of being able to have children, and yet an angel, Gabriel, tells them you're going to miraculously have a child. We met Mary. She's a young woman. We don't know exactly how old, possibly late teens, early 20s, and uh, because she was very devout to the Lord, he said, you are going to be the mother of this Messiah that is coming. And again, she didn't understood what all that meant at the time, but it was going to be a powerful, powerful moment. I talked about, we didn't meet him, but I looked briefly at Joseph, the guy who is in the story, who will be Jesus' earthly dad, Mary's husband. In the book of Matthew, we learn that he's a good man because when he found out that his bride, or fiance, sorry, is pregnant, he could have ashamed her, embarrassed her, or even possibly uh, hurt her tremendously, but instead he decided to divorce her quietly. That's when angels showed up and said, hey, Joseph, don't do this. Hang in there because this is from God. She was not unfaithful to you. So we keep learning about these characters in the story. They're all good people. They all love the Lord with all their heart, and they all live their lives in a way that is pleasing to him. Now we're meeting one more, and this dude's name is Simeon. And he's nobody. And we don't know what he does. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know his ancestry. And that's a really big deal. If you read your Bible, you will find quickly long, boring passages about who people are and where they came from. Because they're always trying to connect so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, or whatever it is. He's Simeon, the dude who's righteous. That's all we know about him. You know why that's important? Because he could be any guy in this room right now. He could be a salesman, a businessman. He couldn't be a plumber, an electrician. I guess that's out. But he could be a guy who works with his hands. There was no plumbing in the first. Anyway, (laughs) he could be a farmer. He could be a carpenter. He could be anybody. But he was sold out to God. And because of that, it says he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. Like, what in the world is that? Well, Israel had lost a beauty pageant, so they got the consolation prize. I, uh, it's not at all what it means. What's going on here, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1, 2, and 3, I believe it is, um, you're going to find in that passage that God has been disciplining Israel. See, if you don't know world history, then a lot of this won't make sense to you, so let me give you the 30-second version. When God made Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden, he told them you could do anything you want. Be fruitful and multiply. Expand this garden to the ends of the earth. You're going to rule over the earth. I only have one simple rule for you. Love me by not eating of this tree. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree, everything changed. Now what happened was God didn't throw in the towel on us. Instead, he said, you know what? He actually says to Eve in that moment, Eve, even though because you've chosen to do this, now you're gonna have pain in childbirth. Now you and your husband are gonna have fighting all the time because of that. However, one day you're going to give birth to a child and that child is gonna come and this serpent who deceived you is going to bite his heel, but he is going to crush its head. And it was a prophecy about Jesus. So in biblical history, history of the world, the stuff isn't made up, okay? You can go look all this stuff up. Then God comes and says, I'm going to choose Abram and makes an entire nation out of him. And because of that, what we see is God is beginning to win back the world to himself. His children, as we just sang about, being brought home. Now the power of that is that as God became their father and led Israel, 
when Israel would not return to God because they started to worship false idols, God said to them, I will discipline you if you don't repent. And Israel wouldn't repent and wouldn't repent and wouldn't repent. So God sent in the Babylonians and God sent in the Persians and it was years of pain and misery. But in Isaiah 40, verses one and two, we're told that one day God is going to bring back his children. We're told that one day it's all going to end. One day Israel's pain is going to end and there will be a king and a ruler and a leader. And when he comes, he will reveal just how good and perfect God's love is for those who love him, for his children. And now Simeon is being, yeah, you can clap for that. If you clap for God, that's fine, yeah. Somebody started to like, oh, he's still going. Okay, so somehow the Holy Spirit came upon Simeon and revealed to him, you will not die before you will see the beginning of this. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, now just wait. We'll read what he said in a minute. I want you to get the awkwardness of this moment. Little Mary and Joseph, young couple, crazy stories happening all the time, eight-day-old baby, take him into the temple, baby's getting circumcised, crazy old dude walks in, they'll know him, He walks up, picks up said baby, and goes, it's like Lion King kind of moment, right? (laughs) And like says prophecy over him. Now, when we had our third little boy, Nehemiah, he's the one who's now four, he came down, it's like, dad, that one? So when he was just little, little guy, um, you know, we were doing the whole feeding thing, so I was like, mama, you need a break. I got the two other crazy kids, you know, pray for me. You go out, have some mommy time. So she goes over in the playing field where they were, and she ends up at the Coles, and she's just kind of going around and shopping and having girl time. It was wonderful. And so some sweet old lady, she could be the, if you're in this room, ma'am, I am so sorry. I'm not saying anything about you, but this lady walks up and tries to pick him up in her arms. And my wife's like, excuse me, can I help you? And the lady's like, oh, you look like you're busy shopping, honey. Don't worry, I'll hold him for you while you shop. My wife has no idea who this lady is. And my wife goes, no, that's okay, I've got him. She goes, no, 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 really, it's okay. My wife goes, no, really, it's okay. Don't touch my kid. <laughs> I don't know how she said it, I wasn't there, but all the mamas know, right? Like, don't touch my kid. Like, what are you doing? But this dude just walked up and picked up Jesus. <laughs> like, Lion King. Like, what is going on? But the Holy Spirit led him in there. Now, what's crazy about the Holy Spirit leading him in there, so for those of you who don't know this, when later on, after Jesus' ministry, when he dies on the cross and he raises from the dead, he says, for those who live for me, who believe in me, who trust in me, I will give them the Holy Spirit. And what that means is this, God is going to live inside those, literally dwell, make his home inside those who love him. That is what Isaiah 40 is talking about. Simeon has something close but not as good. Simeon doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside him. Simeon has the Holy Spirit leading him and guiding him, and it was a game changer. When God came to dwell uh, not just among us but in us, he literally now lives inside us to do what we say our purpose is as a church, which is to become more like Christ, to become Jesus on the earth. As we become more holy and transformed in our thinking and and our living, we become more generous, more sacrificial, more kind, more forgiving, more merciful. As God is living out his story in us, 
What do you want to be said about you on your last day? Man, that dude was a stinker, but we put up with him. Or do you want people to say, there was just something about him. She was so kind, so sweet, so life-giving. Whenever I was around her, she just brought joy to me. What is it you want people to say about you? Well, Simeon picks up the baby. Here's what he says, verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I'm ready to die, God. There you go. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. You're like, what in the world does any of that mean? Well, we got the Lion King moment going on, baby's up in the air, and Simeon makes this kind of weird statement. Here's the thing. What Simeon says next is profound and powerful if you understand what he's saying, but the reason a lot of us don't get what he's saying is because Jesus didn't look like we thought he would look. See, according to Isaiah 40 and many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Israelites were waiting for a king, an earthly king, one who would crush Rome reestablish Israel as this powerhouse in the world and let everybody else know how great they were and therefore how great their God is because that is how the world thinks of power. But it's not how God looks at power. See, if you're visiting with us because it's a Christmas season, maybe you're visiting a family or friend or maybe you're watching online, somehow you stumbled on this, you need to know that when God interprets power, he doesn't interpret it the way that we do. He doesn't act like we act or think like we think. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Take a look real quick. Let's go back over a little bit of what Simeon said. Because see, the problem here is we can't see Jesus for what he is because we want him to be something he's not. So in order for us to understand who Simeon is, we have to understand, sorry, I said the wrong. In order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand what it is Simeon is telling us about him. So we have to understand Jesus for who he was revealed to be, not who we want him to be. Does that make sense? So the first thing we learned in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, is that Jesus is salvation. In fact, his words were actually, my eyes have seen your salvation. And what in the world does that mean? We use the word salvation all the time in movies and in songs for things that have no connection to what the Bible means about salvation. When the Bible speaks of salvation, I don't want you to miss this. What it's saying is this. I am a terrible sinner. Me, Matt Nickerson. I'm a terrible sinner. From the moment I was conceived in my mama's womb, I was bent against the Lord and his ways. But God chose not to destroy me but instead to love me and to lead me back into a right relationship with himself. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, I don't know, like, I don't know that I believe all that. Okay, just ask this question. If you don't think that that's true of everybody, then why do we put locks on our doors? Why do we put car alarms on our cars? Why do some of you carry pocket knives and guns? And you're not supposed to have them here, just saying Why? Because we know that this world is not a safe place. We know that this world is not full of great people doing great things. There are some. We know this world is a dangerous place full of dangerous people. And most of us think it's everybody else. The Bible says it's not everybody else. It's me. Literally me, Matt Nickerson. Oh, by the way, it's you. Literally you. 
And this is what Paul says later in Romans chapter three. He says, every single one of us has sinned. We've turned away from God. Every single one of us have sinned. And what's the byproduct of that? What we've earned is death. Because see, our sin piled up and it earned something. It's like going to a job, you work hard, you expect to get paid. But what did all of our rebellion against God earn us? It, it earned us something. We should have gotten paid punishment. But through Jesus, what we got instead was salvation. When Jesus showed up, we no longer got what we deserve. We got instead God's best. I'm laying in bed last night, and, and I always pray over my kids, and then we sing a song, and then by God's grace, sometimes they go to sleep. And I'm laying there on the floor after we prayed and after we sang, and my little guy, again, the four-year-old, he's famous today, and he's, he's asked me all these questions. One of the songs we said, use the word abundant. What does abundant mean? I'm trying to explain to him how abundantly blessed we are, and I'm naming people uh, like the Rhodes family. I'm naming friends. I'm naming uh, pastors like the elders. Yesterday, we met all day with the executive team and, and just people in ways that God has blessed us. Look how abundantly blessed we are. Overwhelming. What's overwhelming mean? So every statement leads to a new statement. I'm thinking, I gotta get out of this conversation. And one of the things that he's asking me about is all of this stuff. He starts to get to the gospel itself. Like, but daddy, what is it mean to be saved? What is salvation? Dad, what does it mean to have hope? And, and I'm going through all this. I'm like, forget it. We're just all in now, but it's midnight. Let's go. And I'm trying to help him get the depth of the love that God has for him. Remember the other day, buddy, when you disobeyed? Remember the other day when you weren't doing what I asked you to do? Man, God pursued you and he loves you. He saved you. I should have spanked you, but I love you because God loves me. Some of you are like, spanking's not good. It was a joke. It was a joke. Moving on. All right. Luke chapter 2, verse 31. Jesus equals sight for all the blind. In fact, literally his words of chapter, verse 31, if you look at is uh, that he has prepared in the sight of all the nations. He literally has done this in front of everybody so that all eyes could see, all eyes could hear. He has brought salvation in view for everybody. See, you'll find often when you read your Bible that there's a theme of light and dark, that there are people in blindness and there are people with sight, that people who are blind is everybody, and everybody who has sight are those who are coming to God and seeking after him. And it says that he will give sight to the blind. It's both literal, spiritual, metaphoric, it's all of those things wrapped up in one. And this is powerful because what, what uh, Simeon is prophesying about. He's not a prophet, but in this moment, he is prophesying. He's predicting the future. As he's saying is God is going to bring sight where there wasn't previously sight. I've used this analogy before, so forgive me, because the older I get, the more I repeat myself. So I've told this story before, and the older I get, the more I repeat myself. But that's like the best I got today, all right? Give me something here. I was in a cave in Indiana, southern Indiana. I wasn't supposed to be in the cave, but I was with... Three, there were three other people, there were four total. We had flashlights for each of us. And within a few minutes, one of the flashlights went out. And within another few minutes, another one went almost completely dim and we got lost. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave before, but if you're not on a tour, it can be very scary. We decided to separate the group, send two out to try to find help, and we would stay with the dim flashlight and send the other two out. So we decided to turn it off, what little dim light we had, and sit and wait. It is stinking terrifying. And these were two teenagers. And when we sent them out, it felt like an eternity. It might have been 10 minutes. I think it ended up being 20. I don't know. 
But I know this, a couple times we turn the light on just to get our bearings again. When you can literally see nothing, I poked myself in the eye twice in that same time frame. Like it felt like dust or something had fallen off the ceiling out of my head and I literally went like this and I couldn't feel my own eye. I poked myself literally in the eye. You're like, that's silly. That's because you've never been in total darkness, but you have. In fact, some of you, my guess is you're in total darkness today and you maybe don't even know it because that's what darkness does to us. Darkness reduces all of us to fools. We lose complete sense of reality. We think we know and understand and we don't. And this baby has come to bring sight to all of us. Simeon goes on, he says in verse 32, that he's a light for things to be revealed. So if you're in a dark place, ever been in a cave, and you bring even the dimmest of lights and you turn it on, after your eyes adjust, you can light up a massive room with the smallest amount of light. Because when light shows up, darkness must flee. Jesus has come to bring light revealed to us so that those of us wandering in darkness, when we finally gather up the humility to say, I don't know, I can't figure it out, I don't know how to get right with God, I can't make life work, God, help! God shows up and leads us out. And he ends with, he will be the glory of Israel. Verse 32. Why is that? The whole reason that God chose Abraham and started a nation out of him is because Israel was supposed to bring about the Messiah. They were supposed to follow in God's laws and God's ways and bring holiness to the world. Because see, when you walk with God, you know what you get? You get peace. This is why the angels come and proclaim peace on earth. You get joy and you get freedom. Go read Isaiah 40 later and find out what happens when Messiah comes. Because see, peace and freedom and joy, it's everything you're looking for, it's just you didn't know it. Because you were trapped in darkness, you're still looking for it somewhere else in some other way. Paul later would build on these same kind of themes, and he actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 22, he says this, <coughs> excuse me, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Now what he means by that, because that sets up the rest of his argument, is this, the Jewish people have the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies about the Messiah, and so every time we go tell them about Jesus, they say, well, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. We're also told that's why Jesus and the apostles did miracles. They were signs to confirm this isn't just some dude making stuff up. No, this is real. This is true. You could trust it. But that demand for signs also became a barrier that prevented many of them from ever meeting Jesus. It's still true today. I mean, I talk to people all the time and they'll say, if God is real, I just wish he would write it in the sky so I could see it. If he would do that, then I would believe. I say, what about raising from the dead? I'm not being sarcastic. I'm saying he performed these signs. Yeah, but I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Yeah, I know. But hundreds and hundreds of people saw it and they wrote it down so that you could know. But see, the Greeks are different than the Jews. Greek people love to sit around and just talk about great ideas like Twitter all the time. They would literally gather and spend hours and hours and hours of their day and weeks just hearing the newest thoughts. In fact, towns would get boring because you'd heard everybody's ideas in that town, right? It's like you and your friends. So they would Facebook it. And the way they would do this is they would literally have traveling philosophers come through town and they would gather and they would bring up these new ideas. And Paul would go into these Greek areas and they'd be like, ooh, a new philosopher, sit down and teach us. And he starts saying things. They go, what? 
Like, that's just weird. But notice what happened as a byproduct. Verse 23, Paul says, but we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why would it be a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Because remember, what the world considers important, God says, no. God's not interested in displays of power that come from human ingenuity. God's not interested in putting out there your best efforts and how good you look. Because in comparison to him, you look pretty weak. And you look pretty insignificant. See, the point of that is not to shame you, make you feel small. The point of that is just to tell you you are small, and when God loves you, you become something. Not because you proved you are something, but because he looks at you and says, you're valuable. Not because you earned it, but because I love you. But see, that's a stumbling block because the world we live in says, try harder, do more, perform better, and then you'll be something. Get rich, get powerful. But yet in the story of Jesus' birth, we see a dude we don't know where he comes from, a girl and her husband who are really poor, and a priest and his wife who are so old and couldn't have kids that everybody made fun of them. God is shaming the ways of the world through Jesus by saying the things that you think are so important are really not that relevant because one day on your last breath, somebody's gonna write something stupid on your tombstone like one way, do not enter. And what will you have done with your life? Look at the rest of what Paul says here. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, and this is for everybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, you get to trade the foolishness of life for the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is why Paul, the very guy who wrote this, in the same books, Corinthians, he writes to them and he says, I had a really, really, really weak moment. He called it a thorn in his flesh and we don't know what it is. And it kept saying, God, take away the thorn. I used to think I knew what the thorn was. I'm convinced now the reason Paul doesn't tell us what it is is because now everybody can relate with it. So whether your struggle is lust or pride or greed or selfishness or whatever it is, you can relate with Paul because he says, I had one of these. I think Paul's thorn is pride. I can't prove it, but that's what I think it is. I think this man did amazing miracles. He literally, at one point, they said they took his handkerchief when he dropped it, and they were healing people with it. And Paul got a little puffed up in all he'd seen and all he'd done, and he said, Lord, I don't want to be prideful. Take my pride away. Three times, and every time, the answer from Jesus was, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. You don't have to have it all together when I'm all you need. Because see, my power is perfected in your weakness. In other words, in other words, I'm strong enough that I actually am made bigger when you're smaller. When you become less, then I'll be at my most. Because then it'll be proof to the world that it wasn't you, but it was me. And that same Paul goes on and he writes, verse 26 Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Do you get where he's going? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us 
wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. In what world does it make sense to sacrifice? And whoever sacrifices the most wins. Only in God's world. In what world does losing make you a winner? In God's world. And that's the world we all desperately want to be a part of. Let's just be honest with each other for a minute. Don't you get tired of trying to keep up? Isn't your bank account drained from this time of the year when you've spent, spent, spent to impress, 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 and you're gonna pay for it for the next three months? And all the while, all your kids really wanted was the boxes? Doesn't it get weary every time you complete a great project and you get the pat on the back, maybe the raise or the promotion, you gotta do it again and again and again, and it never stops. Doesn't it get weary? Because what the world values is not what God values. Don't get me wrong, God values hard work, but it's hard work in him, which means rest is part of it. God desperately wants you to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, your holiness and your redemption. Let's come back to Luke. Look at verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and oh, a sword will pierce your own soul too. In other words, just to summarize all this, so Simeon, after he's got the Lion King baby moment, he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, here it is. One day, he's going to cause the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Why? Because when Jesus came, he drew a line in the sand and he said, who's with me? Step on this side of the line. And many, many in Israel said, where's our sign? And Jesus literally looked at them and said, I'm only gonna give you one sign, that's not completely accurate. He gave many, many signs, but he said, I'll give you one sign. Here's one. It'd be the sign of Jonah. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, Jonah went into a belly's whale three days. I don't think I said that right. Went into a whale's belly, went into a fish's belly three days, and then was spit up. Jesus went into the belly of the earth three days, and then was spit up. See the fulfillment and Jesus said, here's your sign. When I raise from the dead, that'll be all the sign you need. For those who want to be with me will believe. But Simeon looks at Mary and says, Mary, many are gonna fall because of him. And again, this blew their minds. We're looking for a king who's gonna overthrow Rome and set up his great kingdom and Israel will be great. Yeah, but not the way you're thinking. Jesus is who he said he is and he'll do what he said he'll do, but it's not what you think it is. And then he said, and your soul will be crushed too. Why? Mary's literally visiting the cross on the day of Jesus' crucifixion watching her son's nail-pierced hands and feet, blood dripping from his body, possibly most likely naked because the guards have stripped him and are gambling for his clothing in front of him. Every mom on the world would just want to run up and cover her son, and she's helpless. And Jesus looks at her, and he looks at John, one of his best friends, and said, today, here is your mother, and mama, today, here is your son. 
Even on the cross while he's dying, Jesus looked at his mom and said, I'm gonna make sure you're taken care of. History records that John actually traveled around with Mary. They went to Ephesus and some other places together as he fulfilled what Jesus asked him to do. Because see, that's the crux of all of this. At the end of the day, are we willing to do whatever Jesus tells us to do? At the end of your life, what do you want people to say about you? I know this. I want people to say he was with Jesus. You could just tell it in the way he loved. You could tell it in the way he lived. You could tell it in the way he acted. Why? Because Jesus says, if you are in me and I'm in you, you will bear much fruit. Your life will make a difference. But apart from me, you can do nothing. I did a devotion on this to our staff about six years ago, and one of our staff members went into his office and wrote on the whiteboard, not one thing. To remind himself, I literally am powerless to do anything apart from the presence of God in my life. So here I am, Lord. What do you want to do? See, these moments, as we're wrapping up today, they get tested in painful and difficult situations. It doesn't mean you're not going to have questions and fears and anxieties about what obedience means. You will. I promise you, you will, because Jesus did. Remember later in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, while he's in the garden and he's right before he goes to the cross to be crucified and he's kneeling down, he says literally, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I'm scared and terrified of obedience. I'm afraid to follow you and go all in with you. But God, your kingdom come and your will be done. So I just need you to align my heart to yours. I'm I'm just asking you to give me the courage and the strength that I need to be faithful to you today, God. And it was a game changer. And because Jesus went all the way through in faithfulness, we have redemption. We have life in him. Now I want to close with one last illustration. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel. See, she's relevant. She's got a name of somebody. Of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, Lion King moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now why is this powerful? Here's a lady, the way you should interpret this, in that day, first century, or first century Palestine, what would have happened is ladies would have got married somewhere between like maybe 17 and 25. So let's just say she's 20 when she gets married. She lived with her husband seven years, then he died. So she's like in her late 20s and instead of desperately looking for a man, instead of train wrecking her own life, pursuing who knows what, she decides to spend every day of her life in the temple, fasting and praying and seeking the Lord. And one day she shows up and God says, I've been watching. I've been paying attention. I heard your prayers. Your suffering is not wasted. Here it is. The answer to everything you've been praying for in his name is Jesus. So listen, you may be sitting out there. If you're a Christian, I hope this challenges you and encourages you in about 9,000 different ways. 
Listen, if you're visiting with us or watching online, you need to know something. If you don't ever hear another message from a church, I need you to get this. You no longer need to wait for redemption. You just need to receive it. Jesus is your redemption. He's your salvation. He's your light. He's your hope. And I'm just asking you right now, are you ready to receive Jesus? Because you will not get where you want to get at the end of your life until you make that initial decision to go all in with him in spite of the fears, in spite of the anxieties, in spite of the concerns and say, you know what? I don't understand where he's gonna take me, but wherever he leads, I'll follow. Here I am. If you're ready to do that, we're gonna sing right now. While we sing, I just wanna invite you. Just come on down. We're gonna have some people down here wearing purple connect shirts. You'll see, I think you'll even see the big tall dude Andy in the video. I think he'll probably be down here. You can't miss him. Come down here and just say, you know what? I got questions. Will you help me? And we will take you to where you need to go next. Let's all stand and sing.